Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of Deepest Hell. Please excuse my voice. I am getting over a sinus infection, and I am still a little bit afflicted by it. I hope you're all well and practicing social distancing. I know the isolation is working on some of us because I am really missing being able to sit in a restaurant and have a meal, and I miss even the tedious full day of running errands and getting stuck in traffic. Since schools have closed permanently for this year, I'm homeschooling my six-year-old nephew and we have a month to go. I'm learning probably way more than he is. We live on a lake so we get to fish sometimes and include part of that as his schoolwork and we're riding bikes and doing a lot of walking in order to get some exercise. So please continue to stay safe and healthy and wash your hands often. We're about to get into part two of the Franklin Bradshaw episode. I rewrote this episode because I wanted to get both of her mar- Francis's marriages and divorces in one episode. It's going to include a lot of other things as well. So we won't get lost in just the, the um, relationships. When we left off, we were discussing Francis's anger about Marilyn taking over her father's businesses and Francis getting engaged right after she returned to New York City from Salt Lake City, which was right after she was expelled from Bryn Mawr for essentially being criminally insane. Francis was about 21 years old at the time of her first marriage. Francis's wedding was the second of Franklin's daughter's weddings that he refused to attend. I don't know why this bothers me, but it does. I find this behavior odd, and I find it even more odd that nobody in the family seemed to care. I don't understand doing that to a family that is already so dysfunctional and divided, and you're supposed to be the leader. There's nothing I've read to indicate that he disliked either son-in-law For that matter, I'm not even positive that Franklin met either one of them prior to the marriages. At any rate, Franklin passed up two opportunities to show his love and support for his daughters and to try to forge a little family unity. I can hear the thunder and lightning now. I'm hoping I can get through recording this. Y'all hang in there with me. Bernice was basking in all her glory once again, planning an upscale, last-minute, expensive, lavish wedding for her problem child, youngest daughter. She naively believed that this marriage was the answer to all of their problems with Francis. The reality was that it was only the beginning and things are going to get much, much worse. Francis, of course, ordered the most expensive custom wedding gown that New York City had to offer, while Marilyn cut out a pattern to sew her own bridesmaid gown. Elaine was serious about cutting Frances off until she got her shit together, and she isn't coming to New York City for the wedding. Bernice believed that Vittorio was rich, and now Francis would be off the parental payroll. He had a nice apartment, he drove a Benz, and he could cook, but he also had lots of issues, and his drinking habits were but one of them. Since Francis had drinking issues too, this made for a volatile relationship and it didn't help matters that Franklin wasn't, that Francis, I'm sorry, was not in love with Vittorio. She married him as a way to rebel 
against her parents and to remain in New York City, much the same way that Bernice married Franklin to remain in Utah. Their life together was tumultuous. The fights were sometimes extremely violent, and many believe that Frances was probably turned on by these beatings. In most ways, the pair was vastly different, although they both had major psychological issues. Vittorio was born in the early 1930s in Italy. He was a pearl importer. He was a very short man where Francis was very tall. He had a walleye, which is where both eyes don't focus in the same direction at the same time. He was a fitness fanatic, and Francis wasn't motivated at all to exercise. She, in fact, was a heavy smoker. The main thing that the two of them had in common was their love of drinking. In 1960, Frances gave birth twice. Yes, twice. The first time was February 6th to her son, Lorenzo, and again December 21st to another son, Marco. Both boys were rambunctious and often difficult to handle together, and this would continue throughout their childhood. We're going to cut to the chase here. In June 1963, after four and a half years of marriage, Frances left Vittorio, their apartment, and she took the boys with her. Vittorio was caught completely off guard. <clears throat> Francis left nothing in the apartment for some crazy re and for some crazy reason she drew swastikas and wrote Heil Hitler and Heil Mussolini on the apartment walls. There were conflicting stories regarding the reasons that Francis left. Vittorio, Bernice and Francis claimed that although Vittorio was a tiny man, he was extremely strong and that he had almost beat her to death and if she remained he would surely kill her much of that story was embellished because francis was first of all wasn't the type to take crap off somebody unless it unless she had a good reason to she was usually the one dishing it out most victims don't take the time to clean an entire apartment out much less write graffiti on the walls by all accounts, Vittorio really loved Francis, but he was merely a meal ticket and a means for Francis to remain in New York City. With child support and a hefty alimony settlement, she would no longer have to live with him to get his money. For some women, this would be a sound economic plan, if only for a few years, but it doesn't work for every woman. The fact that Francis had never stopped bilking money from her parents during the four years of their marriage might have caused some of their problems because Vittorio didn't make enough to satisfy her and they were always arguing over money. One of those years, Franklin had built up over $18,000 in oil leases and put in her name. He did that for all his children and he would go on to do the same for his grandchildren. That same year, Franklin also took care of over $7,000 in overdrafts at Francis's at Francis's New York City bank. Francis did spend a lot of tales trying to get a nice large settlement from Vittorio during the divorce. Vittorio often fired back with crazy stories of his own. At one point, Vittorio told the courts he left Francis and wanted a reconciliation. Most people believed that that was a sincere sentiment. Francis declined saying that Vittorio was a drunk and had psychological problems. 
They both claimed physical abuse, and Vittorio claimed that Francis wasn't a good mother to their boys. The acrimonious divorce made the newspapers when Francis accused Vittorio of being allergic to sex. Vittorio accused Francis of abandonment, and he said that he often went to work early just so he could come home and spend extra time at lunch satisfying Francis's sexual needs. Yes, this is all a part of public record. He originally offered her $900 a month for child support, which wasn't bad money in the mid-60s, even by New York City standards, but he wasn't offering any alimony, and it wasn't nearly the amount of money that Francis had in mind. She declined this offer. This refusal led to a four-year standoff between the two. Vittorio claimed that Francis had more money than he did, which is speaking about all the assets and funds that Franklin had put not only in Francis's name, but in their son's name. And he might have been right, considering that he wasn't as well off himself as everyone originally believed. Whether he misled people in that belief or they just mistakenly assumed he was rich is unknown. One thing is certain, though, Vittorio had the better divorce attorney and it's making Francis crazy. I'm really sorry about the thunder and lightning. I'm probably going to drop this unless it gets a lot worse and then I will re-record it later after I record the last two. The same summer Francis left Vittorio, she met Richard Barons at a coffee shop in New York City. She had been there with her sister. He had became a devoted friend to Francis and the boys for probably 20 years or a little more. Richard is the only non-family member that would be instrumental to this particular story and plot. He was a lot like Francis, except Francis really had a lot more audacity than he did. They were both very talkative and sometimes had 12-hour chat fests. They both loved to drink as well. Richard was also consumed with his father's money and he worried that his younger stepmother would get most of it and he and his brother would get nothing. Richard happened to be a well-sought-out substitute science teacher when he wasn't on a drinking binge. His resume was four pages long. And besides teaching science at some of the best and exclusive private schools, it also consisted of selling ballistics, microscopes, and writing textbooks for Prentice Hall. He was intelligent and well-spoken enough to land impressive jobs, but he never kept one very long. While Francis and Richard were never romantically attached, many people thought that they were. They were definitely more compatible than either of the men that Francis would marry. Neither one of these people could sustain happy, long-term romantic relationships with the opposite sex. They were both highly disorganized to the point of being slobs. They were both sly, clever, deceitful, articulate, and eccentric. They were both also obsessed with money and the upper-class New York City folks. Richard knew everything about the wealthy in New York, those whose money reached back for several generations, and those who married it. He knew the best private schools and the most elite clubs. The pair was seen around New York City a lot during the late 60s and the 1970s. The fact that Francis was married never slowed down their friendship. 
Oftentimes, they had Lorenzo and Marco with them while they were hanging out. Given Francis's obsession with wealth, it is easy to see why she chose to befriend Richard. He was her avenue into New York society and good schools for her children. Both of these two were very intelligent, but they were also underachievers. Neither had a desire to put their brains to good use and work for something. They were both also eaten up with resentments towards certain people and the world in general. But I believe a lot of those feelings were also tied into some self-hatred and the combination caused them to stagnate in life. Both of them had a strong hatred towards their fathers. And in Frances's case, I believe she probably hated her mother as well, but she needed her mother to get her father's money and as a buffer between her and Franklin. <clears throat> Richard was equally obsessed with his inheritance as Francis was with hers, which is revolting when you think about it. I don't know how you could possibly sit around and stew over all this BS while your parents are still alive and healthy, even if they are aging. Richard knew his father, who was a New Jersey physician, had had a girlfriend while his mother was still alive and that he'd possibly fathered a love child. The idea of anybody besides himself or his brother getting his father's money made him angry, and he was heard on many occasions saying that somebody ought to get rid of them. Perhaps this is what gave Francis the idea that this would be a good way to get control of her father's money sooner rather than later. She's definitely going to need it if she's going to remain in New York City as a divorced mother of two sons. Franklin tried in vain to persuade Francis to get a job immediately rather than waiting for an alimony settlement that she wasn't likely even entitled to. Her other options were to go back to Salt Lake City if she wanted her parents' financial help or to just go back to Vittorio. Franklin wasn't budgeting his money to fund her New York City lifestyle. Bernice, of course, took Francis' side, and as always, she made matters worse. Francis claimed that she couldn't go back to Vittorio due to violence, but by now they all realized that any violence Francis was claiming was probably just an excuse not to go back. She also claimed that the New York City courts would not allow her to return to Utah with her children due to jurisdictional issues. But that was a lie as well. In fact, she haven't even she hadn't even requested um, the court to go back because she had no intention of doing so. She didn't want to. She was in love with New York City. Vittorio offered for each one of them to take and raise a child, and she declined that offer as well. It was Bernice who funded Francis and enabled her to remain in New York City. Franklin wasn't aware of this at first. Over several years, she liquidated every asset in her name. She emptied every bank account. She cashed in stocks, securities for every company that Franklin gave her over the years, plus the inheritances she received from her father and her grandmother. When she depleted her funds, she then turned to stealing from Franklin. It wouldn't be the first time Bernice's committed larceny. She did it often when the children were younger which was how Francis learned to do it. Bernice forged France Franklin's name on stock certificates and other negotiable instruments and either borrowed against them or she cashed them in for Francis. 
She took any money she could lay her hands on. Francis was as ungrateful as you can possibly imagine, treating Bernice terribly any time she visited New York City. In July of 1964, Franklin and Bernice received a letter from Francis's court-ordered psychiatrist claiming that she desperately needed treatment. This would be the at least the fourth time commitment to a psychiatric facility was suggested for her. It never happened, but I think maybe the hope was that her parents would at least pay the current bill. Bernice decided to fly to New York City to help and to punish Bernice for her good intentions. Franklin Francis decides to make her sleep on the floor. Bernice happily does it. Of course, no mental health therapy is going to take place. Instead, the two decide that they should destroy Vittorio's business. You know, the same business that Francis believes should pay her hefty alimony and child support settlement demands. Bernice put the FBI on Vittorio, claiming that he was a pearl smuggler, which is very different than a pearl importer. By now, Franklin has had enough of Francis and her lame bullshit, and he tells her that if she doesn't get a job, he's going to testify for Vittorio in their divorce trial and not her. Vittorio is appreciative of the jester and offers Franklin a place to stay while he's in New York City. Of course, Frances is livid and she blames Bernice for her father's bad attitude towards her. She blasted several letters off to Franklin that day, claiming that she couldn't do any of those things that he is suggesting for all the reasons that we previously stated. Both Franklin and Bernice are now writing their other two daughters complaining about each other and complaining about Francis. And they always ask the letter recipients not to discuss their letter with others, which you know they do. That's why they're asking not to. It is a family clusterfuck of the highest magnitude. The letter writing campaign goes on for years and it always ramps up whenever Francis is after something or is in punishment mode. She often wrote to both parents about being the reason that their son, Bob, was schizophrenic and in a psychiatric facility. She ridiculed Bernice for her past psychological breakdowns and marrying an emotional cripple who doesn't know how to be part of a family. She shames Franklin for not being able to confront any family crisis or issue and for not attending his daughter's weddings. As awful as Frances is in all of this, she is perhaps the only family member who can actually see what the problems are and cause them out accurately. I'm not lauding her for this. My, um, I'm merely pointing out that she is very much aware of the family dysfunction and she has figured out how to make a systematically broken family work for her. I also believe a lot of her need to punish people is due to her anger and resentment towards her parents for not being the parents that they should have been. And now that Frances is all grown up, she just continues the cycle of punishing everybody who gets in the way of what she wants. Frances doesn't get a pass for her bad behavior, but this is exactly how screwed up adults are made. Bernice always has a crying spell at the onset of one of Francis's verbal beatdowns, 
but the tears never last long because Francis sees these tirades, I'm sorry, Bernice sees these tirades of Francis's as a cry for help, and that causes her to feel needed. Bernice had been trying to get Francis to go to New York City and see everything for himself, and to give Francis and the boys a regular monthly financial assistance. Francis continually gets behind on her rent, and she still charges clothes for herself and her boys at Saks Fifth Avenue. Both Francis and Bernice are hawking assets like the family silver and jewelry and anything that's worth anything. Bernice didn't bother to mention to Franklin that Francis was getting ready to sell, <clears throat> sell her $12,000 worth of stock in his father's savings and loan. Or that Francis isn't planning on using those funds for rent, utilities, or food if she doesn't have to. <clears throat> but she does confide in Marilyn because she knows... Franklin's going to be mad, as well as the rest of his family, when they find out that, they're, that um, Francis is selling stock in their family business. Bernice would have bought it all from Francis if she'd had the funds, but she doesn't because she's already given Francis every dime she could get her hands on. Bernice tried to figure out how to spend all of Francis's spending to Franklin, and all she can come up with is that Francis is mentally ill, but we all know that Franklin doesn't believe in mental illness, this is a man who thought he could walk and talk Bob around the block to relieve his schizophrenia. And if Bob could only get well enough to go to work full time, his illness would dissipate altogether. <clears throat> Bernice tried to engage Marilyn in her schemes in order to go up against Franklin should the need arise. The behavioral patterns in this family have long been established and they flow like this. Bernice claims to be too weak to be the bad guy. So Franklin does the dirty work of telling Francis no. Francis will come completely unhinged and lose it. And that is Bernice's cue to step in and undermine Franklin's efforts, which she put him up to. And she can also be Francis's hero at the same time. Bernice cares not at all that Franklin is going to be infuriated. And nobody understands these dynamics better than Francis herself. At some point before Francis cashed in the saving and loan stocks, Franklin found out about it and realized that she must have gotten them from Bernice. He knows Francis uses the kids to manipulate Bernice, but he still feels betrayed by his wife. He also checked with the courts and found out what he already suspected. Francis never petitioned them for permission to bring the boys back to Utah. And if she had, it would have been granted. He unloaded all of his frustration on the older two daughters. And by the time Franklin and Bernice were deposed regarding Francis's assets and the funds they'd given to her to live on for the four-year divorce, they calculated an excess of $100,000, which was over $25,000 per year. But at the depositions, they only claimed to have given her $27,000, and they stipulated that that was to be paid back. Franklin now sees how Bernice has been the only parent during the children's upbringing the past four years is probably most is the most involved in their lives he's ever been and that was only because they needed him for access to the money that they couldn't steal now he's begging bernice to work with him to get the family's act together bernice already spent the first 25 years of their marriage trying to get the same cooperation from franklin 
and it never happened. The insanity surrounding the divorce lasted four years. Frances even went to Idaho during the summer of 1967 to establish residency so she could divorce Vittorio from there because New York City was taking too long. She stopped off in Salt Lake City and left Marco with her parents and took Lorenzo with her. The boys were six and seven and in school. By now, people are now beginning to realize just how screwed up Francis really is. The boys are rarely fed before school, nor are they dressed or groomed properly. The nuns had to show Marco how to prepare his cereal, which, please, and to brush his teeth. Sometimes Marco walked out of his apartment in his pajamas with his clothes in his hands and the elevator man dressed him. Francis went to a lot of trouble to get Marco accepted into the St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's school. It was great. It was reputable. But the teachers and staff struggled with Francis's mothering aptitude. Francis finally did get a job as a typist in a mailing list business. She was 30 years old, and this was the first and only job Francis ever had besides working at Franklin's Auto Parts Warehouse in high school. She has a new boyfriend now, probably the reason to hurry up and get this divorce over with. But the person that she described to her parents actually fit the description of her buddy Richard Barron's brother who was a had a former military career and who was now a lawyer frederick schroeder the new boyfriend was a consultant with an international firm that had an office in new york city he was not a lawyer and he didn't have past military experience at this point with francis in between husbands people are worried about the boys because of their severe neglect by francis it is more obvious every day. And there's a, a kidnapping story that I'm going to give you here that has at least four versions to it. Um, Marilyn's, Bernice's, Francis's, and even Marco's. I've weaved them all together to what makes the most sense because, of course, some of it is just really way out there. But it goes, the synopsis goes kind of like this. Marilyn was constantly telling Bernice about how irresponsible Francis is. And that the boys were suffering because of it. She leave the kid. She leaves the kids home alone. She doesn't feed them properly. She's out carousing and drinking now more heavily than ever. She locks them out of the apartment. They've been found sleeping in stairwells. Marilyn kept on to the point that Bernice was frantic with worry about the boys, and we know that when Bernice when Bernice gets her angst built up, she resorts to illicit behavior. Oftentimes, one Friday afternoon. The boys, who were six and seven, were at home alone in their apartment with their mom while Francis was at work. Either Marilyn took the boys to Salt Lake City and flew back to New York City, or Bernice flew to New York City and Francis, um, not Francis, Marilyn met them at the airport with the boys and Bernice took them back to, New to Salt Lake City. When Francis got home from work, she realized that they were gone. And some, probably Marilyn told her that her mother had them in Salt Lake City. And she lost it. 
flew into a rage. But Francis never ever called Salt Lake City. The boys, in the meantime, were having a blast with their grandparents who prepared all kinds of good food and desserts and they were playing with them and they set up tents and games in the basement. It was well into Sunday evening when Frances just busted into her parents' home. She slapped Bernice into the china cabinet. She was calling out to the boys to get their things and get ready to go. While they were getting ready, Frances shoved Bernice into the china cabinet again. This time all the china crashed to the floor. Francis just went on and pummeled Bernice. Bernice got pissed and started throwing punches too. Francis yelled at her for kidnapping her boys while she was trying to get the boys out to the waiting car and back to New York City. Francis blamed Bernice for this supposed kidnapping and Bernice blamed Marilyn for talking her into it. Francis believes that Bernice wants to raise kids again because she screwed up the force she had with Franklin and that she'd do anything to be a mother again. The irony regarding the kidnapping is that Frances was always looking for ways to push her kids off onto others, particularly her parents, and if her parents had just asked for to have them for the weekend, she probably would have said yes. But when, anybody, when she didn't have anybody to take them, she never hesitated to just leave them alone or to let them stroll the streets of New York City by themselves. Frances sent a scathing letter to her mother upon their return, vowing that she and her dad would never see the boys again. But the minute school was out for the summer, Frances had them on a plane to Salt Lake City where they would spend the entire summer. Frances was still having money problems. She wasn't making all that much, and whatever she was making, plus what she got from her father, wasn't enough to cover rent utilities and two different private schools for the boys. That summer, while the boys were in Salt Lake City, the elder Bradshaws received a letter from Lorenzo's school claiming that Lorenzo was a disturbed child and that there were overdue school fees that were already at a cut rate and Francis wasn't paying them. Francis, of course, blamed it on Vittorio. And she probably told the school to write her parents and that they would take care of the bill. The school was also aware that there was nobody home after school when the boys went home. Franklin was firm about not sending any more funds to New York City because there were people in Salt Lake City who would take care of them. When they arrived in Salt Lake City, Lorenzo was by now eight, had a strep infection, iodine shortage, protein deficiency. He also had awful teeth and he was anemic. They also had Lorenzo evaluated by a psychiatrist at the University of Utah Medical School. He was behind in reading and writing, but he had an above average IQ. Interestingly enough, Marco's teeth were fine, and his overall health, while it wasn't ideal, was far better than his brother's. Franklin seemed to delight in spending time with his grandsons. He was far more involved with them than he had been with his own children. The boys flourished that summer with their grandparents, which only confirmed Franklin's belief that Francis was abusing and neglecting them. The basement was set up with toys for the boys. They went to camps, amusement parks, had backyard sleepovers, and for the first time, they made a lot of friends. Francis always forbade friendships. She never allowed them to have friends in their New York City apartment or to go to their friends' homes. 
When they got older and they were sent off to boarding school, she forbade them to have any friendships there. Franklin brought home lumber scraps and they built several tree houses and playhouses in the backyard. Bernice and Franklin also thrived this summer taking care of Lorenzo and Marco. It was nothing at all like the misery and dysfunction that they shared when they were raising their own four children. Remember the last episode when I mentioned that Bernice liked to put the Hallmark spin on her story sometimes? So here's a little downside to that summer. While the boys were wild as ever, they um, managed to climb up onto the roof and bang nails. They broke gla glass a glass door. They kept tracking in sand from the sandbox that Bernice had delivered for them to play. And they carried wagon loads of this sand all over the neighborhood and dumped it. The neighborhood mothers never invited them to play in their homes again. They were also stealing from the auto parts warehouse and they hid their loot at the grandparents' home where it was eventually found. Marco was also hit by a car that summer by one of Bernice's friends. He wasn't badly injured, but Bernice did tell him not to tell his mother because she would be angry with her because it happened while he and Lorenzo were walking home from the park by themselves. Marco thought his granny was being a bit dramatic because his mother let him and Lorenzo wander all over the streets of Manhattan alone. Before they were sent back, to Francis in New York City, she sent a letter demanding that they send her $300 a month to pay for school fees and an after-school nanny. Franklin declined and said that the boys were welcome to stay in Salt Lake City if she couldn't properly care for them. Franklin suggested leaving in Salt Lake City at least until Christmas. Franklin countered with leaving Lorenzo and sending Marco to her. Marco was surprised when he was met at the airport by his mom because she had Frederick with him with her and he had never Marco had never met him before. Francis told the child that he would really, really like this guy, and Marco did. It was the first time he ever saw his mother behaving affectionately with anybody. Frederick drove a red Olds Delta eighty eight and that was awesome since they didn't have a car and they relied on public transportation. Frederick worked for a global consulting business in their Park Avenue office. He had a tiny apartment in Flushing, Queens, close to his ex-wife and their son. He was good to Francis's boys, often taking Marco with him on Saturday mornings to pick up his son for visitation. His son was very well behaved and several years younger than Marco. Frederick's relationship with his ex was volatile and it would be with Francis as well. On a Saturday in February in 1969, Frederick and Francis were married at Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue. With the exception of Marco, Marilyn, and her husband, everybody in attendance was either friends or related to Frederick. Nobody from Salt Lake City attended, including Lorenzo, who was a third grader and still there with his grandparents. Marco was told by Francis that Lorenzo was at a sick in the head school and that's exactly where he was going to end up if he didn't behave. That spring Francis was hospitalized twice due to a secanol addiction. 
and Lorenzo broke his leg in a skiing accident in Salt Lake City. When school ended, Lorenzo returned to New York City and the summer home that they had rented on Fire Island. Frederick was now in a legal battle with his ex for custody and visitation of their son, and he was fighting with Francis as well. Lorenzo and Marco were as wild as ever and nearly impossible to discipline. Francis was either convinced that Lorenzo was trying to kill his younger brother, or she often embellished stories to try to make Lorenzo appear to others to be mentally unstable. She moved Lorenzo in with Marilyn and her husband, and Bernice came to stay with Marco at their apartment while she and Frederick went to Belgium on a combination vacation and home-finding trip. They were hoping for a promotion to open up in Europe so that they could move abroad, and they didn't plan on taking Lorenzo with them. Even when the boys were separated, they caused massive problems. They simply were being brought up by Francis with no sense of direction, discipline, or love and nurturing. Francis had just about as much love for her children as Bernice had for hers, which was very little, and neither one had patience at all with the kids. Francis had to make an emergency trip home when the school called because they were about to expel Lorenzo for asking little girls to pull down their panties, and he tried to stab another child in the eye. On her way to the school, she was involved in a car accident. She left the accident to meet with the school headmaster and then went back to the accident scene. Why this accident was so complicated, I simply don't know. Francis and the occupants of the other vehicle spent nearly 12 hours at the police station before the police escorted Francis home and they pleaded with Bernice to have Francis committed. They had even had the commitment papers drawn up and brought them with them for Bernice to sign. Of course, Bernice could see Francis was crazy, but when she offered to sign the commitment papers, Francis calmed down. In December of that year, Francis took Lorenzo out of school and sent him off to Holland, where Frederick picked him up at the airport. They were moving abroad, but Frederick still didn't have a job. They'd been borrowing from Franklin since Frederick had been unemployed, but they promised to pay him back. But before they left the States, Frank Francis changed both boys' names from Lorenzo to Lawrence and from Marco to Mark with a C, Schroeder, taking away their last name, Gentile, evidently as one last slight to the boy's father. While they lived in an unheated home on the North Sea with Marco, they shipped Lorenzo off to a Dutch boarding school for 4th, 5th, and 6th grades. In the spring of 1970, while Frances and her family were living abroad, Bernice was planning another exotic vacation to Japan, Thailand, and Singapore with Franklin's sister. For several years now, she had been after Franklin to draw up a will, and she used this trip to motivate him. She went to an attorney to have her own will drawn up. She took Franklin with her when it was time to sign it, under the guise of being a witness, but she also wanted to have the other law have that lawyer talk to him about doing a will himself. Bernice was successful. Once the attorney began talking Franklin's language, about keeping his money away from the IRS 
and setting up a marital trust and a family trust as LLCs with individual trusts for the grandchildren. Franklin was all about it. Franklin signed his will in April of 1970. Now all the children and grandchildren have trust funds. <clears throat> when summer arrived and Frances couldn't handle both boys, she alternated them with one being at home while the other was away at camp. Frederick finally had a job, but it was all title and very little money, at least not enough to accommodate Frances's needs. What else is new? He wrote, <clears throat> Franklin, who agreed to continue paying for the boys' camps and private schools. This marriage was as volatile as her first, and every time they fought, Frances became ill. Sometimes it was self-inflicted and required hospitalization. She still smoked like a freight train, as did Frederick, and had done so for so long now that she coughed all the time and kept a phlegm cup nearby. During one hospital stay, Marco was dropped off daily to sit beside her in the Brussels hospital, doing schoolwork and playing Stratego. Francis ended up needing a second operation, which required Bernice to come and save the day. It always starts out with Bernice caring for the boys while Francis recuperates, but it ends up with all of these financial issues and unexpected expenses coming up, requiring Bernice to beg Franklin for more money for Francis. Same circus, different continent. Evidently, neither Francis nor Frederick is a morning person because neither rarely get up to get Marco to school on time. They aren't fed. The boys aren't fed properly. And it isn't just Francis getting beaten, slapped around Frederick by now. He beat Marco for playing with matches under the sofa and burning the rug in their Brussels apartment. And Marco was beat again when Frederick caught him smoking at 10 years old. But what do you expect when you live in a house with smokers? Kids are going to do it. The Schroeders fought all the time. They separated, they reconciled, and they fought some more. Frederick blamed it all on Francis's addiction to Secanol. For those who don't know, Secanol is a barbiturate and pretty much a sedative. Although it had other uses back in the day, its street name was Red Devils. It's definitely something you don't want to mix with alcohol, but Francis did. She was often described as out of it when she was on them. She was taking them for more than just sleeping, which is what most addicts do. They don't want the sleep. They want to enjoy the high. After spending their first summer in Brussels, Francis and the boys spent the next four on Fire Island in New York City while Frederick worked in Europe. Francis often entertained Richard Barons and other friends. The two of them constantly discussed their inheritances, which caught the attention of some of the other guests because it seemed rather strange even to them that they were discussing inheritances at that point rather than trust funds. The summer of 1972 was the beginning of the end for the Schroeders' marriage. <clears throat> the fights were much worse than ever with Frederick locking Francis out of the house much of the time and sometimes he locked Marco out with her. He seemed to be more protective of Lorenzo, and that might be because Francis was always calling him crazy and sending him away. It was at that point that Francis began to rely on Marco, and she distanced herself even more from Lorenzo. When the summer was over and Frederick returned to Brussels, he only took Lorenzo with him. 
Frances rented a suite at the Plaza Hotel for herself and Marco, and Marco had a blast. He made friends among the hotel staff. There was room service and maid service, so this was probably the best he'd ever been taken care of, unless Bernice was around. Richard Behrens helped get Marco into Allen Stevenson School for the sixth grade. Frances was racist, among other things, and she hated public schools because if you're going to be somebody in New York City, you can't tell people that your kids are in public schools. According to Marco, his mother only hugged and kissed him three times in his entire life, and getting accepted to Allen Stevenson was one of those times. Soon, Francis would refer to Marco as the man of the family. I don't know why women do that. It's just so crazy. Marco felt special, and he became her confidant. They rented an apartment soon after school began, leaving the hotel, room service, and maid service behind. It wasn't long before being her confidant turned into being a scapegoat and getting blamed for everything that went wrong in Francis's life. Things that he as a child had no control over or even knowledge of, Francis began regularly regularly beating and abusing Marco at this point. Francis's frustration was at an all-time high. She was losing control of the people in her life. And if she lost Frederick, she was going to be back in the same position that she was when, when she left Vittorio. And she didn't do anything to save either one of those marriages. Marco adored his mother, and the more she abused him, the more he tried to please her. As a teen, he understood that she was mentally ill, and like many do with their loved ones who suffer mental illness, he tried to find redeeming ways to feel about his mother. Many famous people and successful people are afflicted with mental illness, like Edgar Allan Poe, Isaac Newton, Beethoven, and John Nash. Those are just a few, but it's often, I guess, make it often makes you feel better to know that maybe your mother is one of these successful geniuses one day in her life, and not just mean. Marco even read psychology texts on his own to try to understand his mother's behavior and the reasons that her many psychiatrists over the years never seemed to be able to relieve her suffering or the suffering of her family. There are a myriad of reasons for this. The most logical for Francis was that she didn't go to psychiatrists to get help or therapy for himself. She went for other sinister reasons. I suspect that Francis was probably diagnosed and never disclosed it to anybody because it wasn't beneficial to her. While many abused children tend to move away from their parents emotionally as they age, Marco was not able to do that. The older he got, the more he tried to get her attention and adoration. He got good grades. He made money. He stole money. He cleaned the house. He got her food. He cooked her food. He was basically doing all the things for his mother that a mother should do for her children. If he ever hesitated or sensed or she sensed that he didn't want to do something for her, she unleashed the silent treatment, the cold shoulder treatment. Um, she beat him. She feigned suicide sometimes. He simply loved and adored his mother so much that he was not only willing to do anything at all for her, he couldn't even stand the mere idea of her being angry, upset, or unhappy with him. Frances was not making any strides to pull her marriage and family together. She and Marco left for Salt Lake City in December of 1972 when Lorenzo <clears throat> and Frederick came to New York City. 
Francis and Marco flew back right after Christmas, and Frederick was at their apartment while Lorenzo was visiting Maryland. In New York, at New Year's Eve, after a huge fight, Francis ended up in the hospital, incoherent and exhausted. She was treated with Thorazine and kept overnight. The next day, test results came back, indicating a severe case of pregnancy. She was already six months along. It was now January 1973, and her baby's due in April. The next three months went by fast. Mark was now taking care of his mom 24-7 and cleaning up after her in every way. Frederick went back to Europe. Bernice was on a travel tour of Fiji, Tahiti, and New Zealand, and there was nobody else to help. It is unclear whether or not Frances knew she was pregnant before her hospitalization, but it wasn't obvious to anybody else. After she started feeling better, she found the energy to order 300 engraved birth announcements from Tiffany's, as well as thousands of dollars worth of baby furniture and baby clothes. One day during all this bedlam, Marco answered a knock at the department door, and standing before him was his father, Vittorio, whom he had not seen in 10 years. Vittorio was so happy to see his son. He hugged him. He hugged Francis as well. Although he had remarried and he had a new family, he still deeply loved and cared for Francis and his boys. He was in the USA on business for six weeks, and he stayed with them the entire duration. He cooked, he cleaned, and he took care of them the entire time. The evening before the baby came, one evening before the baby came, Francis was very thick-tongued and claimed to Marco that she was indeed drunk and suicidal. Perhaps there was some value involved that is that's questionable. She was beating herself in the stomach while seemingly planning a birthday party for the baby who hadn't even arrived yet. Francis had threatened suicide before. She had one time nearly jumped from a high-rise <clears throat> high-rise window. This was always particularly traumatic and stressful for Marco. He begged her to stop. He cried. He pleaded. These attempts often occurred after Francis would be talking to Bernice and begging for more money. Because true to his word, Franklin was through sending money to Francis when she was capable of working for it. She felt herself losing control and she absolutely hated her mother because she would send money in small stipends stipends at a time trying to prevent Francis from squandering it. Francis preferred, preferred large financial endowments. Francis often fiend suicide, but those were usually easy for Marco to identify because she typically locked herself in a bathroom or in the bedroom with him on the other side of the door, begging her to let him in. And it would go on for hours sometimes. But when she finally opened the door, it would be obvious because she was cold sober. The place was never quite the mess it was if she was serious. Her eyes were never swollen. Marco treated it all the same because her his reaction was what she wanted. Him being scared and the pleading and all of that. And so he, it was the quickest way to get it over with and he gave it to her. Lavinia Schroeder was born April 10th, 1973. Frederick did not come back from Europe for the birth or immediately after. Bernice went to New York City and stayed for two months helping Francis with her new granddaughter. Bernice was over the moon because after four grandsons, she was so just thrilled to have a granddaughter. 
And since she was the only granddaughter herself on her mother's side of the family for more than 20 years, it just made this birth special. And Francis had given Lavinia two middle names, one of which was Tacy, which was a family name on Bernice's side. So Bernice is on cloud nine. Marilyn visited Francis in the hospital and left a gift for her new baby niece. It would be the only time she ever saw Lavinia. Francis and Frederick's divorce took a little over three years. This time she hired Erdhine, who was her ex's divorce attorney and just as underhanded as Francis. Erdhine succeeded in drawing out this divorce too. And the divorce was nearly the same thing with all kinds of wild accusations, including sexual ones from Francis about abuse and, um, you know, rebuttals from Frederick about how awful of a mother she was to her boys. Francis claimed that Frederick was a transvestite. Frederick cited burns from cigarettes and boiling water on Marco and Lavinia. And he named the physicians who treated the children. By all accounts, Frederick had a better case than Francis did the first time around, but Francis has the better lawyer and Frederick just pretty much gets screwed. Fra uh, Franklin also um, <laughs> told Frederick that he was going to testify for him as well because he still couldn't get Francis to go to work. The divorce finally ended in the spring of 1976 and like his predecessor, Vittorio, um, like Vittorio, Frederick chose to live on another continent away from his ex-wife. For some unknown reason, Frances fabricated lies about Frederick that she told for a while after the divorce. One was that he was picked up by immigration for illegal activities and deported, and the other was that he was killed in a plane crash in the Canary Islands on March 27th, 1977. Nobody's figured out the reason for the elaborate lies, except that perhaps it's to absolve herself of any blame for the demise of another failed marriage. It is right here, ladies and gentlemen, that I am going to end part two of the Franklin Bradshaw episode. Episodes three and four should be available by the last day of this month, which is Thursday. And I apologize for the thunder and lightning and my voice. I'm probably going to re-record this one, but I'm going to go ahead and drop it until I can get the re-recording done. Thank you all for being patient. And until next time, be the hope in someone's struggle.